So the story goes uh, something like this. Uh, as he was marching out with his army in some undisclosed place in the world, the Emperor Constantine looked up at the sun and saw above it these beams of glowing light which intersected to form a cross, brilliant, blazing. And up above it, he saw the words written, En tutoivika, which means, in this, conquer. And as the story goes, he then uh, went out and conquered with that symbol, with the cross, and laid waste to everyone in his path. Well, last week we talked about conquering in a different way, conquering God's way through Jesus Christ. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 54 said, Oh, death, where is your victory? Where's your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Who doesn't want victory in their life? Who doesn't want victory over failure? But so often the victories that, that we tend to go after and we try to accomplish and we try to attain they're so much different than the victories that, that God achieves. And they're achieved in such a different way, aren't they? The victories that God brings about often achieve in very different ways than we would expect. Human victories, they, they come about by, often by force or by cunning or by shock and awe, by uh, litigation through clever, carefully crafted words, maybe even uh, tapping into some secret special knowledge or, or, or source or strength that enables the hero to, to hit their target or to slay their opponent or to climb that mountain. To be sure, the opposition that, that people face is often great, yes? It is, it is great, but that's what makes the victory all the more sweet. Oh, we love when we have victory. And that's when the stories usually come to a conclusion, right? The movie tends to come to a close and the victory dance. Ah, and the pigskin thrown into the field. And the confetti flying and the medals are pinned and the cities rejoice. Victory. But you know, when we look at the pages of history, in particular, through the lens of Scripture, of the Bible, we see that God often goes about fighting battles and accomplishing what He will in ways that are often so, so very different than our own. And very often we tend to, to look at what God is doing and we say, it seems like He's losing. It, this looks a lot more like failure than it does the victory, yes? And God says, but my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are, my, or neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. And my thoughts than your thoughts. We all want victory, but... Is it possible that sometimes we can confuse the way God achieves victory with the way we want to achieve the victory? And could it be 
that when all we can see is failure, all the while God is powerfully at work bringing about his purposes. We're in Acts chapter 8. Imagine you yourself in living in first century Jerusalem. You've heard about this Jesus. How could you not have heard of this Jesus? Even after he was publicly executed, he is still causing quite a stir. People, more and more people each and every day seem to be believing that Jesus, at the very least, is someone special. They're, they're, they're gathering together. They're, they're, they're selling their stuff and, and so that they can care for one another better. They're constantly getting together to pray, to eat, to learn. And not only that, strange, in, incredible things are happening among these people. People who were sick are, are being healed. And those who were, were supposedly paralyzed, they're, they're, they're getting up and they're walking. And people whom society had forgotten and left by the wayside, well, they're all of a sudden getting special attention and cared for. Yes, something big definitely seems to be happening here. But then there was that day when, when, when that one man, that, that one guy was dragged out of the city. And then people picked up stones and they started throwing them at him. And, and it seemed to be clear as day to everyone watching that if you were a follower of this Jesus you might face the same fate as this guy. And that's what I wonder, if so many people, if I was there, I would be thinking, is this it? Is this the end? Another fad comes to a close. This, this Jesus movement. <laughs> it looks like a complete and utter failure. So much for the name of Jesus going out to the ends of the earth, right? Acts chapter 8, verse 1 tells us, there arose on that day, this same day of this event, a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. They were scattered all throughout the regions of, of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Yeah, those, those apostles are, are a pretty impressive lot, aren't they? They, they? they were guys like Peter and John. And yes, of course they were going to take some heat. They're the, they're the bold, uh, the, the, the cutting edge kind of people, the, the, the wave makers, the, the rule breakers, the ones, who, the, the, the ones who held the power. Of course, they're going to they're gonna draw their attention. Even that guy named Stephen, you might... You might Reason that he, he drew attention to himself. He, he, he could have asked for their inviting gazes on himself. But you know, for the average everyday Jesus follower, you, you'd, you'd think that they, they were kind of flying under the radar. You'd think that they would be rather safe. It's the, the, the top tier guys, yeah, they are, they are getting all the attention. But for the everyday person, well, you would think that their life was was okay. Not so. The death of Stephen marked the beginning of a witch hunt. It was that same day that they were sought out. They were harassed. They were threatened. And it caused many of them to leave town. There were many who stayed. The 12 apostles stood their ground, wouldn't give way to fear. 
There were also others, and we know that because as we read on in Acts, in Acts 20, uh, 9, 26, 11, 2, verse 22, 15, 4, 21, 17, we know that the church in Jerusalem survives. People stayed in Jerusalem. We also read in, in verse 2 here, it says, Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. And so there, even after this, even during the great persecution that is erupting in Jerusalem, there are some who stand and stay and courageously remain strong. And they will go so far as even to, to fearlessly honor this fellow believer whom had just been publicly executed. How do they do that? They do that by, by providing a, a memorial for him, a funeral for him. It says, they made great lamentation. That really tells us something about their boldness, actually, since Jewish tradition later on in the Mishnah records that this is prohibited. When a criminal has been executed, you do not make great lamentation over him. You don't do this. Yet they're doing it. It's almost like a, a public protest of sorts. So yes, there are some who are genuinely just brave. Some would think they were foolish. <laughs> but the threat against them is, is very, very real. Do you, do you remember the man who was watching the coats during Stephen's execution? He's giving witness. He's giving approval to all that was going on. Check out the villain that he turned out to be. Verse 3. But Saul was ravaging the church, and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. That word for ravaging in there, it basically means to wreck or completely destroy. It's the same word that's used to describe what a ferocious animal would do to its prey. You've seen like uh, those Animal Planet and Discovery uh, Channel shows where the, the killer whales go after the seal. You see, maybe you haven't seen that. Oh, you probably don't want to. Ravaging takes place. Or what about when one of uh, Steven Spielberg's dinosaurs gets on the loose and they go after those non-important cast members? Ravaging takes place. It's somewhat of a picture of what Luke is painting for us here. You know, some people are passionate about different things. Some people are passionate uh, about finding the, the be best uh, breakfast burrito or uh, best taco, maybe the I don't know, best pineapple upside down cake or something like that. Some people are passionate about, you know, when, when we get a heavy rain and these California poppies start to bloom up everywhere. They get really excited about that, and they got to take pictures. This man, Saul, was passionate about ridding the face of the planet with these, what he considered, blasphemous, criminal-worshipping Christ followers. He would re later refer to himself as a Hebrew of Hebrews. Oh, he cared about his pedigree. As to the law, a Pharisee. I am a, a, a follower to the letter of the law here. Everybody can see it. I want to make sure of that, actually. He says, as to zeal, my passion, a persecutor, a persecutor of the church. He didn't, he didn't just dislike Christians. They weren't merely a nuisance to him. No, they were objects of his righteous, fire-breathing hatred. 
He was knocking on doors. Can you imagine? We, we, get, we get bothered when, when someone comes and tries to sell us something. I got a knock on the door just two weeks ago, and immediately I started, the, the level of tension started rising, and I opened it. Ah, oh, Girl Scout cookies. You are welcome. Come. Here's my credit cards. Hebrew of Hebrews, Pharisee of Pharisee, to zeal a persecutor of the church. He hated Christians. He's knocking on doors. He's dragging people into the streets, hauling them off, putting them behind bars. In Acts 22, we discover that he sought out and, and, and he got special legal permission to do this. We read that he went on special expeditions outside of Jerusalem to try to track those who had fled his reign of terror. In Acts 9, 2, it says this man named Saul, he was constantly breathing threats and murder against the disciples and the Lord. If you were one of these disciples living in that day, this man, it would have, how could he not look like evil personified, much like how a German SS or Gestapo would look to European Jews many, many years later. What would you have been feeling? If you were a follower of Jesus, a member of the way, as it was called back then, living back in that day, what would you have thought? Is this the end? The conclusion to another misplaced hope? And then what if you were one of those people that had fled? Am I less of a Christian? Maybe I'm unfaithful. Am, am, am I a coward? Should, should I have stood my, my ground? And when I look in the mirror, is what I see is this, this big letter F forming above my forehead, just reminding me of my complete and utter failure to do what God has called me to do. It's interesting, isn't it, how quick we are to label each other as, as failures. <laughs> Often it's based on the different choices that we make. And we've seen this a lot. We've seen it in America. We've seen it in churches just recently. We've been tempted to cast judgment on each other for wearing or, or not wearing a mask, for getting a poke or not getting a poke. We're living in a world where we're tempted to cut off communication with each other if we see a, a thumbs up or a, an emoji that is attached to a social media post that, that we don't approve of. We'll, we'll sign off on a friendship, that is get rid of it, if we hear uh, that a news outlet has been frequented or a political line has been crossed or a, a word was said or a glance was given that didn't strike us the way that we would have liked. We'll leave a church if certain parameters that, that are so superficial are not, are not met. I was serving in a church a, a while back where the cancel culture showed up early. The hiring of a new pastor, no one expected would be a real problem. They were excited for this guy. But after about a year or two, it became evident that you were either for him or you were someone who claimed to be hurt by him. That was the dividing line, and that's what severed the church right down the middle. Severed relationships, really. Relationships, that friendships that had been there for 20 years 
30 years, some 40 years, and the heartbreak that was there going on at that church. Me, the youth pastor, people just crying on my shoulder because of things that were happening, people that had left. But at the same time, fingers were being pointed. Names were being called. I can remember being in one congregational meeting. This is like one of those that is burned in your memory that you cannot erase. And I'm sitting there towards the back of the the sanctuary to the left in front of the sound booth and hearing the pastor say that those who had left the church were actually serving Satan. And it was that one of those moments where you're just like, Really? Really? I know these people. We know these people. We love these people. The, I, I, I taught their kids. They, they've had me in their homes. They, they've loved me. They loved you. And now they are the enemy. A church that once thought itself to be just so, such a strong example of Christian love was splitting into. And I remember thinking, this is a failure. It's a failure. I was reminiscing with a pastor friend of mine. We were actually kind of pastor partners uh, working back at this church. Just, just this past week, we were talking and we were reminiscing on, on that, that experience and, and the after effects that we are still feeling even to this day. And it's hard to look at it's not hard to look back on that experience as just a complete and utter meltdown. It's a, it's a failure when it comes to gospel fellowship. The, the, we weren't practicing the one another's. How, how could we have been? And yet, God was doing something. I did not want to see that. I did want, not want to think about that when that was happening in that moment. God was doing something. And that's not to justify any of the bad behavior that had gone on, any of the cruel exchanges that were taking place. They were not good. Some really sinful things were happening. But it does mean that in a very real sense, what was otherwise an utter catastrophe was at the same time God accomplishing his purposes. You see, I didn't see it at the time, but now it is clear as day. God was sending his people out, spreading them out, so that they might take all of this growth and all of this health and all of this truth and all of this wisdom that he had been building, amassing within them to take it out to other people places. My friend, who's now pastor of a church called Bethany in Canby, Oregon, (laughs) would not be there were it not for this. There are many, many other Christians who are now in all these different churches in South County that were hurting, that are building those churches up. I wouldn't be here. I wouldn't be a senior pastor were it not God bringing me through these difficult days. I didn't see it at the time. I see it now. Could it be that there are things that are happening in your life, 
in your family, maybe even in your church, that from, from your eyes, from your perspective, have all the marks of failure or a step backward or an, another step toward the bottom. Don't forget, his ways are not your ways. His thoughts are not your thoughts. They are higher. They are better. They are accomplishing. They are working. They are achieving. Even when all signs point us to think that they are not. What do you do when you feel like everything's the worst? When, when things fall apart? When it looks like there's no way forward? Well, we know what to do. It's just so hard for us to do it. We keep trusting and we keep on obeying. Many had fled the city. Why would they flee? <laughs> they were being rounded up. They were being hauled off to prison. They fled because their lives were being threatened. They fled because they seen firsthand what had happened to that, that person of faith, that faith-filled, spirit-filled man named Stephen, whom they knew, fathers and mothers. I doubt they wanted to have their sons and daughters suffer the same fate as Stephen. Was that such a bad thing? Was it? Was it faithless cowardice to leave that city? Had the apostles or Jesus instructed them at all costs, stay in Jerusalem? Were they warned by God, you're going to tremendously disappoint me if you don't keep your post and you stay there in harm's way? No, that's actually not there. He didn't say that. On the contrary, didn't Jesus say, go, make disciples? Rather than stay in the city of Jerusalem, didn't he say that they would be witnesses in places like Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth? You know, just as when it was not tied to a particular set of, circ of ideal circumstances, their obedience and their faithfulness to Christ wasn't either dependent upon a particular place, was it? No, it was not. In their going... Wherever they went, no matter what situations they found themselves in, they were to be what? Witnesses. And that's exactly what they were. Look at verse 4. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. This is mind-blowing. The word for, for preaching there, that's the Greek word euangelizo. Uh, and that means proclaiming good news. How could these people be proclaiming good? How is that possible? How are they proclaiming good news? When you're forced to leave your homes, when you're forced to leave your jobs, your communities, your families, when you're running and fleeing for your lives, how can you be sharing good news? And what about us? As our world melts down and, and we find ourselves in the midst of Medical emergency after medical emergency, dodging life-threatening viruses and diseases as we endure skyrocketing prices, mysterious balloons flying overhead, <laughs> hear about these not-so-friendly nations uh, gearing up their nuclear weapons programs, as we have friends and coworkers and family members lighting us up for our narrow-minded beliefs on the sanctity of, of human life, on, on marriage, sexuality, gender, identity, 
as we see poisonous ideologies infecting our schools and and institutions that we have loved for years and have enjoyed for years and years, and they're being transformed into God-hating, people-corrupting machines. How, How do you go about preaching good news in the midst of all that? We, just like the early Christians, we can do it. Because we know that this good news is not dependent on the state of the world, is it? Not dependent on that. This good news, it far outweighs and surpasses even the worst news that our world can dish up. This good news, even the grave itself has no power over. This good news is the good news that swallows up death in victory. This good news, it leaves sickness and disease and fighting and poverty and hunger and death and dying all behind because it ushers its receivers into the marvelous light and reality of eternal life in Christ. This good news is a game changer. It's invincible. The enemy must have been thinking that he had scored this major victory as he unleashed this great persecution on Christ's church. He succeeded in dividing, yes, but in no way did he conquer. In fact, in pushing people out, he merely succeeded in pushing out the gospel. As God's people continued to trust and obey, and spread the good news throughout their time of loss and suffering. They found themselves in this glorious chain of events, didn't they? That actually served to accomplish God's will. In fact, were it not for their faithfulness, I'm not certain you or I would even be here. It's amazing. Thinking over the past several difficult years that we have had, Have we been spreaders of good news? Have you been a spreader of good news? I'll tell you, so much of what I see that's that's spread out there online, especially over the past few years, was not good news. Seems like so many people have been taken captive by the depressing, the doom and gloom, the enemy-identifying, judgment-casting, relationship-killing, church-dividing, family-destroying poison that has been so common among those who don't know Jesus in our world. God's people go about their father's business, yes? (laughs) They seek first his kingdom and trust that he is going to care for them before, during, and after the storm. They have hope that can't be touched by the, the terror of the night. Peace that can't be disrupted by the the arrow that soars by day. Joy that's undisturbed by the pestilence that stalks in darkness. And love that continues to overflow through the destruction that wastes at noonday. And that's because the Lord is their strength and their salvation. How ironic is it that the very one who was hunting them down would later come to understand that. As he was transformed from from Christian persecutor to Christ proclaimer, he would end up enduring many sufferings. In fact, Jesus tells Ananias, who we're going to read about in just a couple weeks, 
this guy is going to suffer much. But in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, he recalls God's promises saying, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. What, what a strange thing God, God for God to say. Yeah, you, you being weak, that, that is good. My power is going to be displayed. My grace is sufficient for you, yes. And Paul says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses. What is this guy, lost it? So that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I'm content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. And Paul did endure all of those. But he says, when I am weak, then I am strong. Who is your strength when the world around begins to crash and burn? Is your prayer that God might fill you with such a faith that you might be a proclaimer of good news in the midst of those tough times and in the midst of those trials? Friends, it is through these kinds of people that God mysteriously, supernaturally, and astonishingly brings about his purposes through circumstances that most everyone else would consider to be a recipe for failure. Philip was one of those people. If anyone had reason to fear after Stephen was executed, it was Philip, because he was actually in the same small group as Stephen. He was part of that same group of the, the, the seven, the seven table waiters. And Stephen, uh, Philip could have played it safe. He could have laid low. He could have gone underground. He could have said, look at my life. This is my, my precious little life. I have so many good years left. There's so many things that I, that I want to do and, and see and taste and touch. So many places that I want to go experience. You know, I, I need to tread gently here. I need to walk carefully so that I can just suck all of the marrow that there is to be sucked out of this life. Yeah, I believe in Jesus, but I don't want to end up like Stephen. Is that what he says? Verse 5, Philip went down to the city of Samaria, proclaimed to them the Christ. <laughs> and with the crowds, with one accord, paid attention to what was being said by Philip. When they heard him, saw the signs that he did for unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. And so there's this place about 40 miles north of Jerusalem. It's, it's downhill, it's below Jer Jerusalem. And that's where Stephen or Philip goes. It's a place that's filled with, with half-Jew, half-Gentile kind of people. The people who worshipped the God of Israel, yes, but they also worshipped a lot of other gods. These people were despised by the Jews of pure descent. Probably would have been considered by some very unlikely to embrace the truth of Jesus of Nazareth. But because God was powerfully working through his people in the midst of what people like Saul were hoping would be the death of Christianity, the good news is actually proclaimed. And people who had been filled and influenced by Satan were delivered. 
People who were immobile were free to to stand up and and walk on their own two feet. And a city that had known so much pain and so much sorrow from being rejected and kept at a distance from all those in Jerusalem, they came to know what it was to be brought into the light of Christ. Verse 8 concludes, so there was much joy in that city. Is your city in need of joy? Mine is. Great joy. The people who walked in darkness need to see a great light. Those who dwell in the land of deep darkness, they need to know that on them a light has shone. You know, what happened here in in Jerusalem and and Samaria and, and Judea Uh, it actually fits a pattern of the way God has worked in the past, and I believe the way that God is currently working now. It happened with Joseph. You remember him, maybe. The one who dreamed dreams and was betrayed by his brothers and sold off into slavery, taken to a far land, suffered, falsely accused, imprisoned, and yet continues to trust and obey God. And God powerfully uses him to deliver countless people from starvation. What Joseph came to recognize, all of us need to recognize. And that is that God works his purposes in spite of and in the midst of whatever evil opposition may arise. And Joseph says to his brothers, who were responsible for all the evil done to him, you meant evil against me. There's no denying it. God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. If you and I were a fly on the wall during any point of Joseph's life, especially those dark, dark moments, I'm sure we would have wondered if this indeed was the the end for him. God had bigger plans. The victories that our God brings about, they're often achieved in ways that, that we don't even imagine, certainly don't expect. And the same was true for these persecuted, scattered Christians. What many people would probably wag their heads at and label as failure is the very same thing that God uses to spread his good news throughout the world and bring great joy to the city. So what about us? What about you? How is God working to bring about his purposes in the midst and even through the pain and the hardships and the threats and maybe even the real persecution that you find yourself enduring. I don't know exactly what that looks like for you, but I do know that as you and I continue to trust and to obey and to make it our business to be proclaimers of the good news of Jesus Christ, as Paul would would later put it, he is faithful and he's faithfully working all things together for good. Let's be faithful, church. Let's be faithful. Through the mountains that tremble and the skies that fall, though politicians and and friends and neighbors turn against us, though at some point we may be forced to leave our homes, maybe threatened even with imprisonment, maybe go forward in the name of our king, seeking first his kingdom, trusting he is on the throne. And for the joy of the city, 
faithfully proclaiming that salvation alone is found in none other than in Jesus. Amen? Lord, we, we love you and we thank you. We thank you for those who have gone before us, who endured many things, some terrible things, and they endured and they were faithful. And they looked to you as Stephen looked up into the sky as he was being executed. And they saw Jesus. They trusted in Jesus. And Jesus is the very thing that was proclaimed and that resulted. Lord, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the way you work mightily in the midst of our pain and our sorrow and our trouble. Lord, may we be people who trust you and continue to point to you, to refuse to be doomsday sayers, to refuse to say the sky is falling, to refuse to divide the lines and point fingers, but to only point to our Savior. For that is what people need. We love you and we thank you. Lord, I pray your blessing upon those in this room, those who are watching online, those who are listening. For your sake, the spread of your kingdom, and the good of your people, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.